Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I hope you are enjoying summer and spending as much time as you can outside wherever you are and that you are making memories in what is already a very memorable year. Today, we are going to talk about what prevents so many white Christians or white evangelicals, more specifically, from having real substantive discussions about race and racism. And I can't tell you how often I hear someone say to me, like, how can so-and-so not see this or that? And they're referring to whether it's a friend or a sibling or a parent who refuses to acknowledge things like white privilege or maybe even just the fact that the sin of racism is embedded into the foundations of this country. But before we continue in that conversation, there is one quick thing I want to share If you listened to the last episode with Amanda Henderson, I mentioned that this episode is the last episode of season three. Now, for those of you who've listened for a while, you know that each year I take an extended time off the grid. I'm off social media. I'm away from really producing much of anything, including the podcast. And I spend this time researching and reading and learning to prepare for the coming year ahead. I prepare both the teaching calendar for Denver Community Church and also lay some groundwork for the Changing Faith podcast. And so season four is going to start sometime in the uh, probably after two months or so. And I know that's not much of a prediction, but given the year that we're living in, I've really kind of backed off trying to predict much anymore, but we will be back probably in the first two weeks of September, sometime in there. But for today, we have the last episode of season three. And why is it that it seems so many white Christians have a hard time talking about race? And this is what I want to explore together today. And I want to do this because many of you listening, uh, and I know this especially uh, with regard to those of you uh, who I've communicated with, we have had unnerving conversations with friends and with family regarding racism. Like there is a disbelief as to how they can ignore or deny the ongoing reality of racism in this country. You've shared about how you have friends who will push back against the idea of of white privilege or anything that seems to imply that they're complicit in a system of evil or that they've benefited from a system of evil a system that's ravaged millions, literally millions of lives for over 400 years on this continent. And I often hear with regard to these conversations, people say things like, oh, I don't get it, and how can they not see this? And so today, it's the reaction and the disbelief that we have, the I don't get it, and how can they not see this? That's actually what I want to respond to. And I don't want to do this so we can be more persuasive in, our, in arguing our points. Uh, I don't want to do this so we can get a leg up on them in arguments. No, I want to do this so that we can love better. And here's why I say that. Thichnot Han says this, understanding is love's other name. If you don't understand, you cannot love. If you don't understand, you cannot love. Now, he's talking here in this context about not just mental understanding, but a deep empathy and connection with regard to understanding, especially he talks about it in the context of suffering. And this is not just physical suffering. It's all kinds of anguish that we see people have themselves in. If you don't understand, you cannot love. 
And this is why I want to think on this together today, so that we can love better. Because it is love that opens the way to transformation. I mean, nobody, at least that I'm aware of, has been like hated into greater health or shamed into real transformative growth. No, of course not. It is love and grace and patience that helps all of us move toward this. And my hope is that all of us would continue to grow and transform and move toward greater wholeness. And so today, I want to take one step toward that, and I want to do so through understanding. Now, I don't pretend that what I'm about to reflect on is like an exhaustive account for all of the reasons the conversation about race proves difficult. Uh, I'm also not going to talk about the sociological reasons that others offer up to us, though those reasons can be helpful as well. But what I want to reflect on together is two parts of a central theology that is embedded in the minds and hearts of many. And how those two parts, those two ways of believing, maybe we could say it that way, have the power to blind people toward a conversation as important as racism. And so to do that, I want to talk about what many people refer to as, quote, the gospel. And then second, talk about God's role in that, this idea of God being offended, and then uh, reflect on some outcomes of this way of thinking, not outcomes for evangelicals, but outcomes for us, and how we can take a step forward with those who do not want to have a conversation about racism. So with that said, first, the gospel. Now, if you've ever read the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you know these are referred to as the gospels. And these books focus particularly on the life of the historical Jesus. And in these books, what we find Jesus often doing is, quote, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom or, quote, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the Greek word uh, euangelion is the word for gospel, and it's translated both good news and gospel. And, of course, there's many, many layers to the question, what is the gospel exactly? Like, what was Jesus saying when he was going about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom? What was this good news that Jesus could not keep quiet about? Paul, in his letters to the churches, he repeats this word over and over and talks about preaching the gospel to them. The word is throughout Christian scriptures, and it's familiar within Christendom, and it's certainly familiar to anyone who's grown up within the Protestant church. Now, if you grew up in the evangelical context and you hear the word gospel, you've been taught that you don't have to ask questions about what is this good news that Jesus couldn't keep quiet about because you've been taught to think and to feel that you know exactly what the good news is. And we know this because it was broken down into bite-sized chunks that made it easy to swallow. So if you are like me or you had my experience, you know that the gospel states something like, you know, it begins with God loves you and created you to know God personally. However, there was a wrench thrown into the works because we, you and me, are born sinful. Or as our Reformed uh, theologian friends say, you are totally depraved, which is not something you put on a birth announcement, nonetheless. Um, in other words, we're screwed from the start. And because of my sin, I am separated from God, which means I cannot know God personally, and I cannot experience God's love. 
But even though there was a wrench thrown in the works, Jesus is God's only provision for our sin through his death in blood shed on the cross. And because of his uh, death, we can know God personally and experience God's love. But it's not enough just to know about this. We must individually receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And then, and only then, can we know God personally and experience God's love. Now, that summary that many call the gospel has also, if it sounds familiar, it's also been called the four spiritual laws. Um, It's also been called the Romans Road, which is like based out of some verses in the book of Romans. Some call it the plan of salvation to differentiate it from exactly what the gospel is. But if you grew up like I did, you would hear things like, well, I shared the gospel with so-and-so, and what was shared is what I just said. God loves you and has a plan for you. He wants to have a relationship with you. You've sinned and screwed that up. Jesus and his blood and the cross provide a way. And if you accept that, then you can have the relationship with God. This is the plan of salvation. This is, in the minds of some people, the gospel. Now, the idea itself is built on the premise of penal substitutionary atonement, which is a really fancy theological phrase that refers to the idea that while God uh, created us to have a relationship, God can't be around sin, and you sinned. And because you sinned, you will now incur God's wrath. But Jesus came in between God's wrath and us and covered us in his blood And now God has received the payment that we could never pay for sin, so now we can have a relationship with God. But see, in both of these ideas of what the gospel is, the the, the idea is, is that God can't be around us because God can't tolerate sin, and because we're sinners, then God can't be around me. God can't be around you. And this is the message, by the way, I consistently heard growing up. I heard things from the pulpit like, God cannot stand to look at you, and God hates you. And my all-time favorite, you are a maggot. Do you know what God does to maggots? The answer is no. No one knows what God does to maggots because there's, <laughs> there's no record of God doing anything to maggots. But I suppose the metaphor works um, because that particular night was one of the few times I went forward like to receive Jesus at the end of a thing, based completely and totally out of fear. Now, you might hear the things I just said and be like, okay, you're exaggerating to make a point. No, I promise you, I'm actually not. Those are actual quotes I heard growing up in church. And with the exception of the whole bit about maggots, that was um, delivered by a very passionate guest speaker one year at a youth group retreat. I heard the other things, God can't stand to look at you, God hates you. I I heard those somewhat often. And the story in their minds was God is super PO'd because you, Michael, have sinned. And if God gets the chance, he will toss you into the fires of hell to experience eternal conscious torment. The only way out of that is for you to confess your sin and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Then you can, ex- you can spend eternal bliss with God. In this way of thinking, by the way, it's not unusual among evangelicals. Now, I'm not saying that they all, it's normal for them to say God hates you, but this idea that God's angry and without Jesus, you're up a creek, 
That's a very, very common way of thinking. And many hold to this belief and they call this belief of how we can get to heaven, quote, the gospel. I once had a guy several years ago who wanted to meet with me and he came to tell me that he was leaving Denver Community Church. And by the way, I have so much respect for people who take the time to come and tell me not only are they leaving, but why are they leaving? Because it, it's just, for me, it shows some form of, of character, and I deeply, deeply appreciate that. So this is one of these people. He said, I, I want to meet with you, and then he told me he was leaving. And as we got in conversation about why he was leaving, it boiled down to, he said, you don't preach the gospel. And then I said, well, help me understand what you mean by that. And he said, well, if I attended DCC for six months, uh, I don't think I would know how to get to heaven. So that to him was the gospel. And this way of thinking is, this is what I grew up hearing. This is what is the good news. This is the gospel. Now, I'm confident for those of you listening right now, there's probably something, uh, let's say, stirring in you about everything I've said. Maybe a feeling of like, there's something... (laughs) there's something that's just not like right about this, or maybe this is not the whole story. Whatever this belief is, it it needs some reflection and some work. And while I agree with you, there are some things, uh, there are a lot of things maybe that aren't right about this. I want to focus on what's central to this way of thinking. And what is central to this idea, this way of thinking, this definition, if you will, of the gospel What is central is not Jesus or God's anger. What is central is you and me. You see, in a very strange way, I become the center of my story. Because this whole thing starts with what I did, that is sin. And that's the thing that God apparently cannot forgive without some sort of payment. But if I make a choice for Jesus or against Jesus. If I make the choice, then God's wrath is assuaged and I am pardoned. Or if I make the other choice against Jesus, God's wrath is unleashed on me. So in many ways, I actually am the one who gets to make the call. And God's action is dependent on what I do. And what I do, by the way, does not involve my life here and now. It dictates what my eternal destiny will be. So it is either the The fire fire and flames flames of hell. Sorry, I I just thought that, you know, the echo would kind of drive the point home about hell. So it's it's either that or it's eternal bliss worshiping God forever. The late theologian Charles Ryrie talks about this way of thinking, and he was really influential in the world in which I grew up in, and he was, uh, he echoed the heart and sentiment of many people who live with this kind of thinking about the gospel, and he summarized his way of thinking, or the way that many think about the gospel, and he wrote this. He said, some of the confusion regarding the meaning of the gospel, the meaning of the gospel, may arise from failing to clarify the issue involved. The issue is, how can my sins be forgiven? What is it that bars me from heaven? What is it that prevents my having eternal life? And he continues, 
He writes, the issue is whether or not you believe that his death paid for all your sin and that by believing in him, you can have forgiveness and eternal life. When a person believes, he commits to God. And what is it that he commits? His eternal destiny. That's the issue, not the years of his life here on earth. This is a common way of thinking among evangelicals. And it's about getting to heaven ultimately. And it's about my sin that bars me from getting there. For others who are, I guess, less committed, it's just really about avoiding hell, which is just kind of like a fire insurance. What I find most interesting uh, about what Ryrie wrote is how individualistic this whole thing is. Notice in the quote I just read that when Ryrie uses personal pronouns, he does so in the singular. He speaks of my and me and you, speaking of the first person or second person plural, and his. All of these are singular pronouns. You see, for him and many who hold to this idea, it's not that we, meaning like human beings, humanity collectively, we are not central to the story. It's that I am central to the story. This idea is radically individualistic. It centers on Michael in my world. And I remember growing up, even being invited to quote John 3.16, you know, the big banner at football games, that verse. I was invited to quote it using my name in place of the world. So it was not for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was for God so loved Michael that he gave his only begotten son. On it went, which means we boiled down the massive universal cosmic story of the gospel to me. So I, I personally angered God because I sinned, whether that was like, you know, I cursed or I disobeyed my parents or I lusted after a woman or I smoked a cigarette or I was disrespectful to a teacher. Whatever I did, that was enough to land me in hell. So the God of the universe had a personal beef with me. But if I accepted Jesus, then I could forego all of that. This produced such profound and deep fear in me. Every single day from the time that I was probably late elementary school through high school, I prayed the sinner's prayer, meaning I prayed to be saved multiple times per day because you could not be too safe. I used to say things like I'd be riding home with my parents and I would be like, God, like in my mind, God, give me a sign that I'm actually saved. Because if I die, I don't want to go to hell. I was petrified. And the worst thing was, I couldn't stop doing the things that made God angry, meaning I wasn't very good at obeying the rules. And not only was I not good at obeying the rules, but I did so many things wrong every day, I could not name all the sins that I did every day when it was time to confess and ask forgiveness for my sins, which means now those sins are outstanding and they're not covered. This is also something I heard preached. Someone actually told me once, if you don't confess all of your sins, God won't hear your prayers. So just start layering this whole thing on. I mean, God really, really was pissed off at me most of the time is how I thought. And this is, this is way too much. You, no healthy person can exist in this environment for very long, or you can't stay healthy, I should say, in this environment for very long. And I point this out because it was not just personal. And by the way, when I say personal, like this is the term we use about Jesus, my personal Lord and Savior, 
which is nowhere in the Bible, but this is what people have developed, the personal Lord and Savior. When I, when I say this, it's not just that it was like personal. It, I say all this as an example of how we have made the gospel about me or about you. It is an individual plan of salvation. It is my sin, not yours, not ours, mine. And if I can get that all squared away, well, then I am good to go. So now I just buckle up and hang on for a wild ride. And so if someone is hearing about the sin of racism, think about it in this context. If someone is hearing about the insidious history of slavery and its continued impact on our culture, all the while, their entire life, they have been taught that and they believe that sin is about what each individual person does wrong, then it really should not surprise us to hear people say, well, I'm not a racist. I have black friends. I'm not a racist. I don't tell racist jokes. I'm not a racist. Like, I'm, I'm colorblind. Be, because for them, any sin is personal, is individual. And, and as a matter of fact, individualism is such a value that undergirds all of this, then we shouldn't actually be surprised either when they deny white privilege. Because white privilege would push against their notion of individual success. When someone says or argues against white privilege, they talk about how hard I have worked. I have worked to get this. I have done this. So the idea that there is a larger corporate reality that is putting them at the front of the line and giving them a head start, well, that's impossible because there is no larger systemic anything. It's individual sin. It is not about us. It is about me. There is almost zero communal or corporate understanding in this way of thinking at all. Now, layer all of this on top of the rugged, rugged individualism that is a part of the culture in the United States, and you've really set the table for people to dismiss any kind of systemic sin. Now, evangelical Christians would say, well, of course the world is evil. I mean, this is what someone who, who defines the gospel in individual terms believes. Of course the world is evil. And that's what makes the promise of getting out of here and going to heaven when I die even better. And I can get out of here because I have believed and I am saved and I have a personal relationship with Jesus who is my Lord and Savior. It's worth noting, by the way, that, and I've said this before, but nearly all of the personal pronouns, or I should say the second person pronouns in the Christian scriptures are nearly all plural. When Paul is writing to the church and he talks about you, he's talking about all of you. We just lose this in translation because in American English, the second person singular and the second person plural pronouns are the same. It's both you. Now, I know some of you listening, some of my Southern friends, you're like, oh, no, 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 there is, there is a plural, second person plural that we can identify. There's y'all, and then there's all y'all, and all y'all, that's the plural. Fine. If you want to start reading all y'all into the Christian scriptures, it will be more helpful for all of us. Um, but I think that's worth noting, and it's something that we often overlook. And if you read the Hebrew scriptures, the sin that is often spoken of there in the con is in the context of the people of or the nation of Israel, and it is for the most part systemic sin. 
This is why the writers of the Hebrew Scriptures believed the entire nation suffered the consequences together. They were all guilty of participating in systemic sin. And somehow, evangelicals have largely overlooked this, ignored this, or missed this. And in doing so, they boiled it all down to a small story. Michael did things that were wrong. God sees Michael and wants to blast him. Jesus says, Dad, hang on. I think we can work through this. And Michael responded to Jesus in his death. And now God can look at Michael and say, ah, come on in here for an eternity. And when we do this, we don't need to look at anything more than what is going on with me and God. And it allows us to remain ignorant to the larger social realities because I, Michael, am good to go. Now, there's a second piece to this. And the second piece is the idea of God being offended. If you think about the, the way evangelicals talk about the gospel, while God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you, God is deeply offended by my actions or by your actions. And so it doesn't take much to hear people talk about the idea of a holy God who cannot be in the presence of sin Others have talked about how you or how I have offended God's justice. And that offense demands payment. God's not going to let you off the hook. And that payment that we will incur if we can, because we cannot repay it, I should say, is God's wrath. It is going to be unleashed on us. God will avenge God's self. And this way of thinking goes on and on. And really, behind it is this belief that God is, God's really pretty angry. And Jesus' death and resurrection of the blood of Jesus, it will hold God off from some and for a time. But at some point, God is coming back and God is going to open up a can, which is not a quite literal translation of the Greek. God is going to destroy this earth and God's going to destroy people in it. The focus here is punishment. And it's punishment because, quote, justice must be served or payment must be made. And this is a very common way of thinking about justice in the evangelical context. Justice as punishment or what you call punitive justice. And we know this kind of justice well. I mean, it, it speaks of getting even. It's the old eye for an eye concept. We need to make sure that they pay for what they have done to me. We need to make sure that they pay for what they have done to us. And so when something is done against us, we respond by punishing them. Of course, the problem is we don't observe the old adage, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Instead, we go, oh, you took an eye? Well, good. We're going to break your arm and we're going to beat you silly and we're going to take two eyes for an eye. We forget, by the way, that the instruction eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was given as a way of saying to people, stop trying to get ahead. Instead, practice getting even. And by the way, Jesus went further. He said, you've heard that it was said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Nah, I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
You see, when Jesus talked about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, he said, no, it's actually not about getting ahead, and it's also not about getting even. It's actually about living with a generous spirit. This is not the way we think of justice, and this is not the way we're taught to think of justice. It's interesting that Tony Perkins, who is the president of the Family Research Council, a noted evangelical institution in Washington, was asked about Jesus's command to turn the other cheek, and his response was, yeah, but after a while, you run out of cheeks. I mean, why not just be more honest and say, yeah, I'm not interested in what Jesus meant by that. And we can judge him, or we can say, how are we like that? How do we subscribe to punitive justice, or what Archbishop Desmond Tutu refers to it as, which is retributive justice, demanding retribution for what happens? This is the kind of justice that demands punishment for the perpetrator. And by the way, we all know this sort of justice well. I mean, just think about the movies we watch. If there is a villain, we want the villain dead. In fact, the death of the antagonist in many films is considered to be the resolution. And so there's someone in a movie that you cannot stand. They are the enemy of the hero of the story. And there comes the point in the story, usually within 15 to 20 minutes of the end of the film, where finally they meet their maker and they die and we smile with a sense of victory that all has been made right in the world. And though we would not say it out loud, something within us is like, yes, justice has been served. I mean, this is the idea of justice we live with, culturally speaking, nearly every day. So we can throw rocks at Tony Perkins if we want, or we can just be honest that we're all a little bit like that, and we too feel like, "Mm, maybe we've run out of cheeks as well. We we live this way in our churches. We live this way in our culture. I mean, think about how many times you may have heard someone in the context of the Christian religion, in the context of church, have Uh, some unfortunate event befall them and they somehow connect it to or consider it punishment by God. Like I did something wrong and therefore I'm being punished. I had a couple come and visit me one time and they, uh, she got pregnant while they were dating and within two months of finding out that she was pregnant, they told her parents and his parents, and then a couple months later, they got married when she was somewhere around six or seven months along. And years later, we're seven, eight years into their marriage, they came to see me and said, we're continuing to have all sorts of struggles in our marriage, financially, holding down a job, housing. And they finally opened up to me and said, we really believe this is because we made a mistake and got pregnant out of wedlock. Now, consider this for a moment. This is our notion of God? This is how God works? I I mean, what they failed to consider was that they were in their very early 20s when they got married. There was continued pressure uh, that their families exerted on them not only to get married, but to stay married, and the constant guilt heaped on them for what they did by their families was also not helping, Within two months of getting married, they introduce a child into the mix. Uh, He never finished college. I mean, on and on and on and on. You start to step back and say, you know, maybe some of the struggles you're having involve 
a whole series of realities that you're ignoring. And instead, you just have such a deep belief that the God of justice is about punishment that you can't let go of this idea. I had a friend who was a rancher. I actually worked for him for a lot of years. And he had his dream horse. It sounds funny to say it that way, but it was. It was this horse that he had ha- he owned, and he uh, it was born on his ranch. He reared it. He broke it. He trained it. It was his horse, and he loved this thing, adored this horse. And one day, he had the horse in a trailer, and there was this horrific accident in his horse. Uh, both legs were broken. It was, it, was, it was the most brutal. It was just a brutal moment, and they had to put the horse down. And several days later, he was talking to me and he said, you know, I'm beginning to think maybe God took the horse from me because I loved it too much. What kind of monster have we created? What would you think of a parent who was like, yeah, so we had this dog and my kids loved it and they loved it so much they were always playing with it and not doing the chores that I asked them to do, so I killed the dog. (laughs) you would call somebody and there would be some sort of intervention happening right there because that is, that is a twisted way of thinking. But this way of thinking of punitive and retributive justice in the heart of God is not only a belief, it's part of what evangelicals, many evangelicals call the gospel. This is a terrifying prospect. So hold this thread a little bit longer, because this is what I want us to consider with regard to the conversation around justice. If justice is retributive or punitive, if justice from God is punishment, if this is what's within the heart of God, and this is what you believe, then how do you feel when you hear people who you consider liberal, or maybe people who you don't consider a Christian, How do you feel when you hear them calling out for justice? You see, it's very possible that what you hear at at some level, whether it's conscious or subconscious, that what you hear is a call for punishment. What you hear is a call for retribution. And there is no way that you are willing to be on the receiving end of that. So you push against it believing it cannot be true. And I didn't know how deeply this idea regarding justice went until several years ago. This is before I moved to Denver. I was preaching a sermon, and I talked about justice. Now, I want to be really clear. The most overt reference I made to justice was when I quoted the psalmist who writes, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And over the next several days, I received a slew of emails from people because they could not believe that I was sitting there talking about justice. I mean, there were accusations that um, I cannot speak of God's justice, insert the word punishment, because I can't understand it. I can't even talk about God's, why God is punishing people, because I could never understand what it's like to be God. Uh, There was another person who said, justice is a word for liberals. There was one person that said, and this is the most revealing, as Christians, we do not have to deal with God's justice because it's been dealt with by the blood of Jesus. So you hear this, and all of a sudden you begin to recognize that for many in the white evangelical world, justice has to do almost exclusively with being punished by God. And in American culture, it has to do with being punished by the legal system, or just this idea of justice being vengeance. 
And who wants to be the person who's in like the crosshairs of vengeance? Tell me one person who's out to be punished and is thankful when that opportunity comes along. You begin to see it shouldn't be surprising to us, just based off these two observations, that there's little interest in this conversation around race by many white evangelicals. And it would be easy, maybe even at this point in this episode, to say, well, yeah, you know, and you know what? Because of that, forget about them. I mean, what a shame. How short-sighted can you be? What a waste. But, but what I want to suggest is there's actually some things to reflect on here, not as a way of criticizing, but actually as a way of learning from. And there's, in doing this, we might actually understand even more, which means we can love even more. And that this understanding and wisdom from the evangelical tradition is something we can take with us and it can teach us and transform us and challenge us. And here's why I say that. Let's think about the first observation we made about the individual. Now, I'm not talking about individualism, which places and keeps me or you at the center of the whole story. What I mean is this. In the larger conversation about systemic evil, there are still individual humans. There is you and there is me, and we together as individuals are a part of a larger cultural conversation. And there is often a tendency in our culture, particularly among those who fancy themselves more progressive, to focus on the larger systemic issues. And by the way, we need this. But there are some, maybe even I could say many, who do this while seemingly ignoring their inner work. I had a conversation uh, recently with a friend of mine who is an activist, and he talked about how his life years ago tanked because his whole focus was outward. And he talked about how he wanted to change the world, but he wasn't changing inside. He said to me, I was consumed with changing the world, but I wasn't interested in changing what was inside me. Now, keep in mind that within the scriptures, we do see systemic sin addressed a lot. But we also see an invitation to consider our interior world as well. And Jesus held these two things together. Jesus had his prophetic messages to the powerful and the religious elite who were propping up a system of oppression. And at the same time, Jesus saw individuals. And we recognize this when he granted forgiveness to a person. We see this uh, in his healing one person at a time. We see this when he would go and enjoy a dinner with a tax collector, with a sinner, with a Pharisee. Even Jesus' prayer to God the night before his death, he spoke of his own heart, of his own longing, of his own pain and struggle that he was going through when he was in the garden. And we can overlook this. And if we overlook it, then we can largely go unchanged. We can remain unhealed, and we can believe that we are on the right track because we have taken up the right moral issue, or we are on the right side of history, or we stand with and for justice. We can actually do all those things without ever really being transformed. This may be actually one of the reasons why um, I've seen so much ugliness from people who call themselves allies. And so in conversations around justice with regard to LG, the LGBTQ community or racial equity or immigration, 
Some of the greatest ugliness um, I've seen with regard to words and messages have come from straight white people born in America. Now, I'm incredibly grateful that they've seen injustice and have chosen to speak up. But what I'm confounded by is how awful their words can be. I mean, sure, you, you could say they stand for the right thing outwardly, but inwardly, I'll tell you what, there is something or there's a lot of things that seem to be churning within them. And it comes out of them and it's directed toward others. And let me say, it hurts. And I know this because I have been the object of their ire. And, and, and by the way, if you're listening and you're like, well, there's the other side. Yes, I see this in all places all, from people all over the spectrum, both right and left. And this is possible if we ignore or overlook what's within us. If we don't pursue healing, if we don't address our wounds, if we fail to shine a bright light on our sin, well, then it stands to reason we will not be those who are transformed. And in the words of Richard Rohr, it is transformed people who transform people. And so I suppose if your goal is not to be a part of transformation in, inwardly, well, then it doesn't matter what your interior life is like. And, and by the way, God knows imperfect people are central to leading change all the time. And I'm not saying to be transformed is to be perfect. But I will say this. What I have seen is those who take the time and have the courage to look within. Those are the people who have the ability to stick around long-term and often the ones who bring about the needed change, not only in themselves, but the needed change in the world and needed change in the heart of others. So when we consider the evangelical focus on the individual, I think we are right to critique it as self-centered and incomplete. However, if we only stand against it and reject all of it, then we actually can become those who overlook our interior life. And in doing so, we can fail to see the need to look at ourselves as individuals. And by the way, this is just one, another example of the pendulum swinging culture in which we live. You see something you don't like and you go to the bitter extreme and you become its opposite. It's like we're, we're defined by what we're against so often so we see something, we scream and yell and curse it, and then we become its opposite. Rather than saying, maybe there's something here for me to consider. Maybe, maybe we need to pause and consider, what is it that every perspective brings? And when we learn about those perspectives, when we uh, hear from those perspectives, then we can learn to integrate them in what we do, and then together we can grow. By the way, this is true of justice as well. We just talked about how the, the focus of justice in churches and in our culture is often punishment and retribution. But if this is all we focus on, then we've missed the richness of that word and we've missed the richness of that tradition. Bishop Desmond Tutu wrote this. He said, there is another kind of justice, restorative justice, whose chief purpose is not punitive, but restorative, healing, it holds as central the essential humanity of the perpetrator of even the most gruesome atrocity, never giving up on anyone, believing in the essential goodness of all of us as created in the image of God, and believing that even the worst of us still remains a child of God with the potential to become better, someone to be salvaged 
to be rehabilitated, not to be ostracized, but ultimately to be reintegrated into the community. Now keep in mind, Bishop Tutu uh, ran for his life many times as a black person living in South Africa during apartheid. He is the one, he was one of the leaders of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee whose job was to help South Africa heal from the evil of apartheid. Still, he held to the idea of restorative justice. Yes, perpetrators were punished for their crimes, as they should have been. But for him, there was something larger to this idea of justice that, that really gave some vibrance in life, in love and compassion and grace to his picture of justice. That, that nobody is beyond the hope of being salvaged or rehabilitated, that nobody deserves to be ostracized. And really the ultimate hope is that we would reintegrate them into the life of the community. My, my favorite writer about this idea of restorative justice is a woman named Marietta Jaeger. Uh, Jaeger's daughter was kidnapped when they were on a camping trip and was later murdered. And the murderer called Marietta Jaeger one year to the day after her daughter had gone missing because their whole family story was written up in the papers and asked her, like taunted her about her daughter's death. Eventually they caught the murderer and Marietta Jaeger went to see him and she said to him, I want to know how you're doing because I have been in turmoil since my daughter disappeared and was kidnapped and I can't imagine what this is doing to you. <laughs> I mean, What? So she says this, she writes this, I had finally come to believe that real justice is not punishment, but restoration. Not necessarily how things used to be, but how they should be. In both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, from where my belief and values come, the God who rises up from them is a God of mercy and compassion, a God who seeks not to punish, destroy, or put us to death, but a God who works unceasingly to help and heal us rehabilitate and reconcile us, restore us to the richness and fullness of life for which we have been created. This was now the justice I wanted for this man who had taken my little girl. My goodness. This is, this is the justice I wanted for this guy who killed my daughter. And what's important in what she says, by the way, is she says it's not how things used to be, but how they should be. And I point this out because for people of color, there is no restoration within the United States in the sense of making things the way they were. Whether you're Latino, whether you're uh, uh, black, whether you're First Nations person, there's not one single point in our nation's history where people of color have been equal. So when we talk about this idea of restorative justice, I want us to hear and understand Jager's words that restoration is not necessarily how things used to be, but how they should be. Nothing's how they used to be because the way it's been for 400 plus years has been absolutely insidious. Let's talk about how they should be. You see, if, if justice is only retributive, then, well, then what? I mean, we're just gonna continue to repeat the story of history. You know how it goes. There's an there's a empire and they're oppressive and then eventually they're overthrown and whoever takes power from them, no matter what their good intentions in time, that power becomes the oppressor and on and on it goes. But what if we worked with a broader understanding of justice? 
Like, what if we believe that restoration was actually central to it? It's helpful to remember that the words righteousness and justice often go hand in hand, especially in the Hebrew scriptures. And righteousness is not a reference to one's piety. Righteousness means to do what's right, which is a synonym for the word justice. It's the way things should be. Don't forget the direction of the biblical narrative is toward a picture of the way the world should be. This is what the prophets talk about all the time about everyone sitting under their own vine and fig tree. This is the idea of having enough. We're going to beat swords into plowshares. We're, we're going to become farmers, which is a picture of us continuing to care for the earth that God has entrusted to us. Nations are not going to go against war against other nations, and they're not going to train for war anymore because God will be their God. This is the restor- restoration the way the world should be, that we are invited to hope for. This is the broader picture of justice. Now, you might be listening going like, whoa. So, I mean, like you mean just let people get away with this crap? I mean, some of this stuff has to be destroyed. And some of this has to be burned down. And I say, yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, really it is. But let me re- maybe just offer a reflection you see, there are some who want to burn it down and destroy it, and they want to make them pay whoever they are. And, and by the way, this is retributive justice. And there are people who, in wanting this, are like drawn toward this almost to the exclusion of restorative justice. But when I hear people, particularly Christians, speak this way, there's a conflict here for me. Because in my experience, those who want punishment or retributive justice for, for those who've built these oppressive systems and they want to burn it all down, in some ways, they act as judge, jury, and executioner. But these are the same people, in large part, who cannot tolerate the idea of a God who punishes people for their sin. I mean, do you see the conflict? We don't like a God who punishes but we're okay with being the ones who unleash punishment on others. This doesn't make sense to me. Now, as much as I'm able, um, I, I, I am, I'm trying to continually understand the anger and the pain and the outrage. But when I see this coming, especially from white folks, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't register in my head. I can't stand a God of punishment, but man, I am okay with punishing others. Now, it might seem like I'm contradicting myself, so hang with me. Let me me reflect on the words of N.T. Wright, who says this. The idea of God's wrath is rooted in the idea of God as a good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, implacably hates anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racism, if God is not wrathful at child abuse, if God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, think of it this way. Imagine my, uh, my 15-year-old daughter showed up at home and she had a fat lip and a black eye. And I said to her, what happened to you? And she said, well, at school today, there was this kid, he's kind of a bully, and he just pushes people around, and he came into the lunchroom and said some things, and he turned around and he, he hit me several times. 
If she told me that and I was like, oh, okay, thanks for telling me, you'd be like, wait, 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 how did you react? Now, if I told you that my daughter told me this and that I had to go for like a 17-mile run just to get all of the sheer force of my wrath out of my body and told you I embraced her and hugged her and cried with her and spent days steaming and stewing on how I could just go and pummel this kid and how I worked with people at the school to address what happened. All of that, you'd be like, okay, I totally get it. I mean, if somebody, if I was with my wife and somebody made a horrible, horrible statement to her and I just looked at her and kind of like little elbow in the side, I was like, oh, did you hear that one? You'd be like, what, what, what's, what are you doing? But if I told you that someone said that to my wife and I turned on my heel and walked toward them and had a very, very direct conversation or even threatened them, you'd be like, I totally get it. See, there is a place for anger. There is a place for punishment. And when we consider God's response to racism, God's response to all the inequities that we have sown in this country for 400 years, yeah, we should be angry. We should be angry at the injustice of the last 400 years. And if you are not, if that doesn't get you going, check your pulse. But when it is that, and there is no room left for restorative justice, it's very, very possible we've missed the point. You see, when it comes to this idea of justice, we should seek to see our complicity. We should be quick to repent. Uh, but there's always this place for restoration. There's always this hope that grace will prevail. And if this is not true, by the way, then it's not good news. It's not the gospel. And so if, if we're in this place where we're not interested in that, we have to ask some serious questions about what we believe the gospel to be, which almost brings us back to the beginning of this episode. You see, we need a story that's far bigger than the small story about Michael angering God. I'm talking about the large, cosmic, universal story that God is drawing everything to God's self. That everyone in everything is being invited into God's loving embrace. And if there is no room for restoration, then that larger story is no longer true. And if that's not true, well, I mean, honestly, the hell with it, right? You see, it's possible we need to see multiple facets and perspectives. And rather than accept any one perspective, we need to scrutinize it. We need to seek greater understanding. We need to ask questions together. We need to learn from one another because it turns out that the good news is good news for the universe. It is good news for everyone, which means it is good news for me as an individual, for you as an individual, and it's good news for all of us together. It turns out that justice, the foundation of God's throne, seeks the restoration of all things, and that will inevitably be painful for many of us in the process of restoring this good earth. Maybe, for the, lesson, maybe the lesson for us here today is to take a step toward becoming less reactive. That rather than run from what we disagree with, we can stay and listen and see what truth there is in it. And if we can do this, if we can understand more, then we can open up ourselves to love more. 
And if we can love more, then we will together move forward toward real growth and transformation. And this is my hope. So may you, my friends, may you seek to understand. And in understanding, may you glean the wisdom that finds its way into unlikely places. And may this wisdom feed you and serve you and transform you so that you may go and feed and serve and transform others. And that is where we conclude season three. I want to say thank you, sincerely thank you for those of you who faithfully listen, for your kind words over the years of this podcast. As I do each year, I I will miss you uh, all while I take a break, but I also look forward to returning as I'm always energized by the time away. And so until next time, which is the first episode of season four, as always, much love and peace be with you.